Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Jordan, you may have a seat. It's great to be with you again this morning as we continue uh, in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in Mark here for the past few months and uh, covering a glorious passage this morning, literally glorious passage of Jesus transfigured. Let me pray and uh, we'll get started this morning. Father, you were good. You were glorious. Um, we long to, to see you. We long to look into your face. What, a, what an amazing picture we have here in a transfigured Jesus on top of a mountain. And we, we know that uh, Jesus uh, came down from that mountain to climb back up on a different mountain to climb up on a cross, to die for us, and to ransom us from sure death. So we are yours because of that ransom that was paid. Our debt is paid. Praise be to God. Help us to treasure Christ as we study your word this morning. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was a, a kid, I really loved the weather. I've, I've talked about this before. A lot of you know about my love of the weather, and actually that was uh, a previous occupation of mine, that uh, I was a meteorologist. Uh, and when I was growing up here in Fort Worth, I've mentioned a, a story before several months ago about a, a meteorologist named David Finfrock, who uh, is at Channel 5, but I uh, haven't mentioned before, at least during a sermon, his boss, uh, who was Harold Taft. Uh, maybe very few of you remember who Harold Taft uh, was. He was really an icon in uh, TV weather. And I uh, worshipped Harold Taft uh, as a lower G god. Uh, I uh, loved Harold Taft. He was a, really a pioneer in TV weather. Uh, he started doing weather in 1948 on Channel 5, at the very, very beginning of, of TV. What made Harold unique is that he was very much a no-nonsense man. 
Uh, he was a colonel in the Air Force, and so he had a military background, and then uh, went on to be on TV on Channel 5 doing the weather for something like 42, 43 years. So but by the time I came around uh, as a kid, he had been doing weather on TV for quite a long time, and he was a legend. Uh, he was the man. He was uh, someone that you just immediately uh, listened to and knew uh, that you should respect what this man was saying. And so in eighth grade, so I was about 13, 14 years old in eighth grade, uh, we were having a, a, a National Junior Honor Society uh, ceremony uh, at the end of the school year, I believe. It was probably April or May. And one of uh, the, the teachers, one of the sponsors of the National Junior Honor Society kind of asked a group of us, uh, who, who might we get to speak at our National Junior Honor Society ceremony? And I just offered up immediately, well, uh, Harold Taft, maybe Harold Taft would come to our ceremony. And she, she looked at me and she said, that's a great idea, go call him and ask. And I was terrified immediately. Uh, I had never talked to Harold Taft. I'd only seen him on TV, this, uh, again, icon, this uh, legend. I, to the thought of picking up the phone and calling this man, I immediately was terrified. I was petrified at the thought. And it was not only that he was this huge figure uh, in my life and in TV weather, but he had just recently been diagnosed at that time with stomach cancer. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I didn't even know uh, if he was in good enough health to make any type of public appearances. Uh, but I agreed to call him from school that day, and I'll never forget how afraid I was in that moment. I had uh, ascribed him uh, much glory and much honor, <clears throat> and here I was uh, talking to this man on the phone. As we turn to the passage this morning, uh, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, uh, it's been a, a weightier week for me, if I'm honest with you, studying this passage. Uh, most weeks are, as you would hope, uh, I, I pray that I'm always affected and changed and convicted and encouraged and exhorted by the passage that we are going to be in and the passage that I am preaching the following Sunday. But I'll confess to you, this week uh, was, was extra weighty because there is uh, so magnificent, uh, so glorious, so incredible the things that are happening here uh, with the transfiguration. Human words seem to escape me and, and wanting to communicate the glory of God. How do I do that justice? How do I describe our glorious and majestic God? And so in, in many ways, it's, a, it's an impossible task. It's very similar to uh, if, if someone were to describe a sunset to you or describe uh, their bride walking down the aisle, describe that moment when your son or daughter is born uh, versus being there to see it, versus being there to experience it. And so in many ways, uh, we are all at somewhat of a disadvantage uh, to what's going on in this passage, specifically to Peter, James, and John, who see a glorious, transformed, transfigured Jesus Christ, something radical and beautiful. And what we, what we can say uh, that is happening here in this moment uh, at the transfiguration is that we are getting a radical and beautiful glimpse at the glory of God. Peter, James, and John getting a momentary glimpse 
at the glorious nature of God, but it's a glimpse. Fully revealed will be this glory at the resurrection, but they see it for, for a moment. The transfiguration is, is happening here in the book of Mark, really at the very midway point of this gospel. So it's happening midway between the baptism of Jesus, where we first heard the Father, and then at the end of the book of Mark at the crucifixion. So right in the middle of the baptism and crucifixion, we have this transfiguration. It is a glimpse at the majestic glory. It's a glory that is hidden in some ways with and in the suffering of Jesus Christ. We don't see this radiant white, this brightness, this overwhelming uh, light when Jesus once again puts on human flesh and goes all the way to the cross. But that glory, that glory is gonna be made more full at the cross. It's going to be fuller glory because of the cross. In fact, that's why the the transfiguration is so beautiful. The glory of God that is shown at the top of a mountain is also a glory of God that comes down the mountain to save us. And that's the main idea this morning. If you have a handout, you see it there. The glory of God comes down the mountain to save us. So we see Jesus, glory of, glory of God in, in flesh, explicitly here in the transfiguration. We, we are getting a word picture. Mark is doing the best with, with his words to describe what is going on here. Three of the disciples see it, Peter, James, and John. This is explicitly in flesh, the glory of God. And so the glory of God in our passage does two things. The glory of God overshadows and the glory of God undergirds. It overshadows and it undergirds. The first is that first blank on your handout, the glory of God overshadows. It it overshadows, it towers above, it casts a shadow, It, it is mighty, it is powerful, it is raining high and overwhelms us. We clearly see that in this passage, verse 2, that Jesus' clothes become uh, incredibly white. And uh, I'm sorry, verse, verse 3, that his clothes become radiant white, intensely white, like no one on earth could bleach them. And we see, we read that, that Jesus has taken these three disciples up a high mountain, James, Peter, and John. In Luke's same account of the transfiguration, we read that Jesus is taking them up to pray. And so uh, that is most likely what Peter, James, and John are thinking is about to happen. They're going, uh, like we've seen Jesus do before, uh, go up to a mountain to pray with God. But we see that something else happens. This word transfiguration, this transfigured, uh, is the the word that we get our word metamorphosis from. Uh, It's the same idea, transformation. Uh, A change has happened, a change in Jesus' appearance. And we see that he emits this supernatural brightness. Now, it's often in Scripture that it's the mountaintops. It's where uh, we see on mountaintops this transcendence of God, where we see this type of transcendent nature of God displaying his glory, his overwhelming glory and power, a lot of times shows up on mountaintops. 
And there with Jesus are two prominent Old Testament figures. You you see that in the text. Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus in his transfiguration. And we might remember, if we think back to the lives of these two men, Moses, in the book of Exodus, goes up to a mountain. He asks God to show him his glory, but all that God showed him was his back. You remember that story? Moses on a mountain wants to be in the presence of God's glory, but all God would show him is the very back. And then Elijah in the book of 1 Kings, Elijah, a prophet, goes up to a mountain and and asks God uh, for deliverance. Uh, He's at a point in his ministry that he is at wit's end. He's bewildered, and God reveals his glory to Elijah with a soft whisper we read in 1 Kings a low whisper. So Moses and Elijah have received and reflected God's glory in different, in different ways. And at different times, these two men have been on a mountain and have received and reflected God's glory. But Jesus is here in this story as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's what Moses and Elijah represent. They represent the law and the prophets, and Jesus is with them, and Jesus does not reflect or receive a glory. He emits it. He radiates a glory. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, about Jesus, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the glory of God. Now, as we keep reading in verse 5, we have our friend Peter. And Peter responds to what, what we can only uh, are able to see here in, in this text and, and maybe begin to internalize and imagine how incredible this scene is. And Peter, terrified, almost reflexively, just screams out, we need three tents. I don't, I, I don't know if you've been in this place where you've been so overwhelmed and stressed and, and you're kind of forced to make some type of decision or, or say something and just whatever comes out is what, what framework is going on in your mind. And so uh, if you're spooked, uh, if you're scared, you know, that's why you go, ah, I'm like that just comes out of you. And here in this text, what comes out of Peter is we need three tents. Ah, we just need three. He sees Moses and Jesus and Elijah, but we don't need three tents. Peter does not understand that only one tent is needed. There's only one tent or shelter or tabernacle that is needed because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's that's what this scene is helping us to understand and what Peter doesn't yet understand at this point. We don't need three tents, we need one, but we don't need a tent. In fact, we can't have a tent or a tabernacle that's built with human hands. Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the tent. Peter is wanting to pour new wine into old wineskins. If you remember how we talked about that several months ago, that he's seeing these, these great figures from the Torah that he has studied uh, and been taught all his life, Elijah, Moses, and now Jesus. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 this is, this is not about Moses and Elijah, this is about me. 
They, they were always pointing to me. They don't have glory that they emit. I do. There's only one tent needed, and I'm going to build it. It's my body. And then, incredibly, if, if it couldn't get any more incredible, then in verse 7, it says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Again, this is the voice of God the Father. The first time we're hearing God the Father's voice since the very beginning of Mark. In Mark chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism. And the Father says the same thing then. This is my beloved Son. And in that moment, he is actually affirming what Peter just confessed the last chapter, that this is the Christ, this is the Son of God, and God the Father is affirming that in this moment. He says, Peter, you are right, this is my beloved Son, this is God, listen to him, listen to him. God doesn't say listen to them, he doesn't say listen to your heart, he doesn't say listen to some of the other things that are going on around you, he singularly focuses Peter and the disciples on Jesus. Listen to him, my son. And so this is so, again, incredible. We, we lose the ability with any language, the English language for us this morning, to describe how incredible, how majestic, how weighty, how glorious this scene is. And then having been terrified, at some point, we see there in verse 8, they look up and see no one with them except Jesus. To make the point even more clear, the only person that remains with them is Jesus. So they have seen the glory of God. Peter, James, and John have seen the immense wonder, the greatness, the dazzling brightness, the beauty of the transfigured Jesus Christ. And then in verse 9, Jesus and the disciples come down the mountain. They come down the mountain. That's our second point that leads to our second point, which is the glory of God undergirds. It, it envelops us from above. It overshadows us. It towers above us. And then as it comes down the mountain, it undergirds us. It, perform, it uh, provides a foundation for us, supports us from below. Jesus does not stay transfigured, but again, Cloaked in human flesh, he comes down the mountain into the lower places with the disciples. And we see here in the remaining verses in our passage that there is a discussion about the resurrection. And there's confusion about Elijah. And so what is going on here? We probably should have some type of context to why the disciples are asking about the resurrection and Elijah. The confusion is coming from the fact that in the Old Testament, specifically in the book of Malachi, which is the last Old Testament book before the New Testament, we see that Elijah was going to come right before the awesome day of the Lord when all would be made right, when there would be, uh, it was thought, 
one big resurrection. So all who had died would at one time be resurrected. When Elijah comes, that was the sign that that big resurrection was about to happen. And so you can imagine that Peter and the disciples, having just seen Elijah, are now wondering what in the world is Jesus talking about with his personal death and personal resurrection? I just saw Elijah. Isn't it all about to happen? Aren't we all going to see this amazing day of the Lord with everybody who has died previously being raised from the dead? But then we see there that Jesus again corrects them. And Jesus says, Elijah has come. Elijah did come. It was John the Baptist. John the Baptist came, testified to me, And Jesus says there in verse 13, they did whatever they pleased to him. They killed him. And as we've talked about, this is a preview of what would happen to Jesus. This is a preview of what would happen, as Jesus says here yet again, to the Son of Man. So even though they had just been through this incredible glimpse of God's glory. And in many ways, we, we can empathize with them in some ways. They've been this, through this incredible mountaintop experience, seeing the glory of God, hearing the voice of God the Father. And so we can have somewhat of an understanding that there is some confusion right now. They see this picture of resurrected life. But Jesus is saying, yes, but it still must first go through the cross. Like we said last week, the cross is a must. And so Jesus comes down the mountain with his disciples. I mean, this is, it, this is an incredible scene, as we've said over and over again this morning. But also, what a grace that Jesus, what a mercy that he would, in this moment, provide this glimpse of the glorious resurrection for these three disciples What an encouragement to them. They've just been talking about how Jesus was supposed to suffer and die and be handed over and killed. And I'm sure that there was uh, many, many conversations that Jesus and the disciples were having about that because at the beginning of our passage, it says after six days, this happens. So you can imagine six days worth of trying to reconcile in your mind what Jesus is talking about that he must suffer and die. Jesus takes them up a mountain and says, here I am. Look at this. This is coming, but first we have to go through the cross. So it's a mercy and an encouragement that Jesus gave these men a snapshot of his glory. But what a grace that that glory came down the mountain. I've been thinking this week about how difficult this must have been for Jesus I mean, we read about in the New Testament uh, the sufferings of Jesus and how he was tempted in, in almost every way imaginable, how, how he was tempted from uh, the voice of the devil himself. He was tempted by the world and the culture around him. And surely in this moment, what a, what a temptation to, to, to be transfigured, to be Uh, with his father in in a state and in a sense of how he has been with his father from eternity past before he came into this world as a baby. 
How, how he's hearing the voice of his father once again say, this is my beloved son to radiate rightfully the Shekinah glory of God. And he came down the mountain. He could have stayed there. He could have stayed there with his father in the Shekinah glory. And he would have had every right to do so. But he came down the mountain into our valley. Soon enough, Jesus will be on a different mountain. But on this mountain, he will not hear anything from his father. On this mountain, instead of being wrapped in glorious, dazzling light, he will be shrouded in darkness. Instead of beloved disciples present with him on this mountain, all his friends and disciples will have fled. I love this insight from a Pastor Jeremy Treat talking about this as well. Instead of two Old Testament saints with Jesus on this mountain, there will be two criminals. And yet, after Jesus' death, it will be a Roman centurion to be the one to declare that truly this is the Son of God. When, when Harold Taft died, I was a freshman in high school, and I was, I was devastated when Harold Taft died. I loved Harold. Watched him every night. They broadcast Harold's funeral on TV, and I remember recording it while I was at school and coming home after school, and I just wept and wept and wept. And the tears were there, not, not only because he was such an icon and had such an impact on me and uh, fueled in many ways my, my love for weather. He was so good at his job. One of the reasons I wept is because just three months earlier, Harold Taft showed up at my middle school. He showed up in my middle school library at our National Junior Honor Society ceremony. And when he was there, he, he called me to himself and said, this is my friend. He didn't have to do that. Three months later, he would die. But I'll never forget his generosity that day. Jesus could have stayed on that mountaintop. Again, he had every right to stay on the mountain. He is God. He was with his father in the way that he had been before taking on flesh. But Jesus came down the mountain with his disciples, knowing that he was on the way to the cross to suffer and die for us. If you were here last summer, you might remember that uh, my friend Randy Fuller uh, from Northbrook Church came and preached for us, and he preached this, this text in Matthew, the transfiguration out of the gospel of Matthew. And I thought he made a really wonderful connection that morning. I'm just going to repeat it for us. But he talked about how we see this account of the transfiguration here, obviously, in the gospel of Mark, in the gospel of Matthew, and in the gospel of Luke. But strangely, John doesn't have this exact same account in his gospel, although he is one of the men that is present at this time. 
But Randy made this point, and I think it's wonderful that we see the transfiguration in the Gospel of John just in a different way. It's in John 1, beginning in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we all have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The glory of God became flesh and dwelt among us and took on death to save us. So what is our response? we We can spend the rest of our lives pondering and meditating on such a glorious truth. In fact, that is exactly what we will do until that day that he comes for us. But in this text, I just want to offer us three general things that I see. Those are the three bullet points under application. The first one is listen to him. Listen to him. After all, this is the the father's sermon in this text as two points. This is my son. Listen to him. And so if this is what the father is asking the disciples to do, I think it's best that we pay attention to what God says. Listen to his son. Listen to his voice. This is the voice of the good shepherd. And the sheep recognize his voice. And so we recognize it and we follow him. What are the competing voices in your life? We inevitably have them. We are uh, coming in, as Andrew said earlier, from all sorts of different experiences week, highs, lows, confusion, joys, sorrows, madness. And in the midst of all that, we are listening to certain voices. Certainly in our day and age, we, we are bombarded with many, many voices in media and podcasts and various conversations that we might be having. What are the competing voices in your life? And whatever they are, can you pray that you would recognize and respond to and, and listen to the voice, the voice of Jesus, the voice of the beloved Son? We get several glimpses of this in the New Testament. Specifically, I'm thinking with Peter. Um, Because again, Peter uh, was here at the transfiguration and Peter in many ways is recounting everything that Jesus did for Mark, for Mark to record in the gospel of Mark. We mentioned that before. And so here, Peter at the transfiguration, and we see what he says on this day, but listen to what he writes in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 and following, it says this. This is Peter writing, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. You would do well to pay attention. When we listen to him, when we listen to the word of God, Jesus, the word made flesh, when we listen to him, we acknowledge the authority of God's word. There's certainly an aspect in what Peter is writing here in his letter and what God the Father himself is saying on top of this mountain, listen to my son, obey the things that he is saying, submit yourself to the word of God. Do not do whatever you please. That's what Jesus says about what they please to do to John the Baptist is whatever they want. We don't listen to those voices and obey those voices. We listen to God and obey him. So what is he asking you this morning to pay attention to? What what does he want you to listen to and respond to and even obey and submit yourself to? Is Is it in the realm of courage? Is there something that God is asking you to do that that takes courage to do? Courage to forgive someone who has hurt you? Courage to have a a conversation with someone that that maybe is going to be uncomfortable? Courage to step out into the light, to confess a hidden sin, to walk in the light? Courage. You listen, listen to him. Listen to him to him, not, not only listening to the word of God that, that causes us to respond in obedience, but also listen to his voice, the, the voice that uh, even at this time, at this very moment, is advocating for you at the right hand of the Father. Do you listen to his voice tell you that he loves you? Do you listen to his voice that is singing over you? And do you listen to him? And all the fullness that that is. Secondly, we walk with him. We listen to him. We walk with him. So as did the disciples, we walk with Jesus into the valleys. Jesus comes down from the mountain and enters into the valley experience where you and I hang out. This is where you and I are. We're in valleys And so we walk with Jesus. Jesus is with us and we with him as he walks with us in our valleys. And then we take Jesus into the valleys of one another's lives. That we show up representing Jesus, united to him as Christians. We walk with him into one another's sufferings and struggles and burdens. 
We bring Jesus into a lost and dying world. We bring Jesus into our neighborhoods. We bring Jesus into a hospital room. We bring Jesus over our children as we tuck them in. We bring Jesus with us as the moment that a sin has been revealed. We bring Jesus with us at a wedding. We bring Jesus with us at a funeral. Jesus walks with us and we walk with him into the sufferings of this world. Are you walking with him? He's with you. Are you walking with him? Finally, we glory in him. We glory in Jesus. This is the essence of joyful worship, which is what we're always aimed at here at City Church. It's our earnest heart desire that we would find joyful worship when we gather on a Sunday and and when we scatter and go back to our homes and neighborhoods and workplaces, that joyful worship never ceases because God is with us. He is glorious. I love how Jonathan Edwards speaks of this. Jonathan Edwards says, So God glorifies himself also toward the creatures, meaning you and me, in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding and communicating himself to their hearts. And number two, in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which he makes of himself. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen or known or reflected upon, but also by its being rejoiced in. Rejoicing in the glory of God. This high and lifted up glory, the glory that fills the earth that we read about in Isaiah 6, the same glory that raised Christ from the dead, Romans 6, 4, that though we fall short of the glory, Romans 3, 23, by faith, his glory is now in us, John 17, 22, and we are becoming like him by degrees of glory, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed or transfigured by the renewal of our minds, Romans 12, 2, and that our present suffering a future glory is set to be revealed, Romans 8, 18. A bride, a city coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God, Revelation 21, 11. Glory in him. Glory in him and what he has done for us. And on that day, he returns with the new heavens and new earth. His transcendent, magnificent glory will overshadow us but it won't be a temporary glimpse like Peter, James, and John. This won't be a glory that uh, is a snapshot. This will be a glory that lasts forever and ever and ever, and we will enjoy it with all the saints for eternity. What What a glorious, beautiful day that will be. But today, we can be thankful that he came down the mountain and went to the cross for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we, we do. We are amazed. We are overwhelmed by your glory. When we really begin to ponder it and who you are, we do get terrified. There is a fear, and we fear this glory that overshadows all things. We marvel at the fact that 
This glory came down from the mountain and into our valleys to go to the cross. That you put on flesh and dwelt among us and took on our sin and our punishment on the cross to save us, to rescue and ransom us. And we know that you've been raised to new life and Though we here in this room have not seen you face to face, we know there will be that day when that happens and that we will behold the glory of God anew. We are so grateful that, that we carry with us Christ. That he is in us. We walk with him, that we have the ability to listen to him. And I pray that we would. And I pray that we would glory in you, that we would worship you from a joyful heart, all the days of our life. We ask that you would do this work, Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.